Right on Philippians chapter 1. You can turn there if you're not there. And we're going to pick up this letter to uh, the church in Philippi at verse 27. That's kind of where we, where we left off. And I'll just remind you um, the situation. Paul is not in Philippi. He's in Rome. He's in prison. He's chained to a, a Roman prison guard. And he's told this church that while he is there in Rome, he said some beautiful things to them. He says, I have you in my heart. I have you in my mind. You are at the forefront of my prayers. And as he lets this, this group of folks know in Philippi the joy that he has when he considers them, when he remembers the work that God did in their midst and, and the things that he believes God is still doing. And uh, he says this, he begins to consider himself and, and he begins to point to the fact that his life has sought to glorify and to magnify Jesus. That's through everything. You know, whether it be through chains or in spite of critics or even in the, admit, in the midst of what might appear to be crisis at that time, Jesus has been glorified in uh, his life. And that is the desire of Jesus within the church. And kind of, you know, what we talked about where we left off in Philippians was this, is that our lives are to serve as the magnifying glass that enlarged Jesus. That our lives are to be that, that telescope that brings Jesus near when he seems far away for others. Our lives are to be the microscope that makes him big when others think that he's small. And so as Paul points out, you know, some examples from his own life, he begins to call this church to stand firm. And so... Uh, we got a rookie back there on the on the slide, so you got to keep up with me here, okay? So, number one, right on. There we go. Okay, got an outline up there for you this morning to follow along. So he calls them to stand firm, and it says this. Let's read verse twenty-seven. It says, "Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear." of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. And so Paul, as he begins to call this church to stand firm, he says this, I have this desire, I have this plan, and it's this, I want to come and visit you in Philippi. We know that Paul never made it. And actually the reality is this, is as he, as he shares this desire, he, he says, you know, though this is my desire, that's not my real concern. I want to come and see you, but here's what I'm really concerned about. If there's one thing that I want to tell you, this is the message I really want you to grasp. And it's this, that Christ be magnified, that Jesus be glorified by the manner of your life. This is the one thing that matters. This is what I would say. This is the one thing that matters in the life of every church, in the life of every individual within our church is this. That our lives speak to the glory of Jesus Christ. That our lives make Jesus big. That our lives bring Jesus near. That we magnify Jesus. 
And so Paul says this, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. Behave, in some translations it actually says this, it says behave as citizens. And Paul is actually playing on this idea as he talks here of Roman citizenship. You know, Philippi was located in modern Greece. It, well, we know this, the base of, the base of the Roman Empire was Italy. But this city in Philippi, though it was outside of Italy, it had been colonized by Rome. And its citizens enjoyed all the rights and the benefits of Roman citizenship. And they lived accordingly. Citizenship was reflected in their speech. Citizenship with Rome was reflected in the manner of their lives. And, and I, I think that likely in comparison to the the average person in the Roman Empire, those who had true citizenship and were citizens of Rome, those with citizenship, I imagine, kind of walked with a little bit of swagger. You know, they, they knew who they belonged to and they knew what they are a part of. And they gained a confidence and they gained an identity of understanding that they were true citizens of the most powerful human empire on earth. Citizenship, Gave them, you know, that sense of belonging and a certain confidence. And so Paul says to the followers of Jesus who are citizens. We're citizens. We're citizens of heaven. And so he says to this church, behave as citizens. Live a life worthy of the gospel. You know, whether I'm present with you in Philippi or whether I'm stuck in Rome... You live a life worthy of the gospel. That's what he calls them to. Which means this. Live a life in agreement with the obligations that the gospel puts upon you. Live a life that in agreement with the, the obligations that the gospel imposes and the privilege that it brings. You know, I would just ask us this question this morning and actually I'm going to do this for fun I want answers <laughs> so I'm throwing this out at you but I mean the question is this does the gospel bring privileges does the gospel bring with it privileges does citizenship have privileges what are they let's let's throw them out a few things this morning freedom, freedom. Peace. peace eternal life joy Forgiveness, good. Pardon me? Light burden. We can communicate with God, belonging. It's beautiful to think about those things, that the gospel brings privileges. Let me ask you this, does the gospel come with obligations? What are those obligations? What are the obligations, sorry? Obedience, good one. Worthiness, thankfulness, steadfastness, trust, love one another, righteousness, sharing Jesus, making disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And so Paul says this to this church, you've got to live a life that's in line with the gospel. You've got to meet the obligations of the gospel, the manner of your life. You're a citizen. Oh, you're a citizen of Philippi. That's fine. But ultimately, you're a citizen of heaven. Your king is Jesus. And you're to live a life 
worthy of Jesus. You know, the most important weapon that, you know, the church has, I would say, is this, is, and that we have as individuals, is the power of a consistent life. To live a life worthy of our calling. To behave as citizens. Now here's the thing about the privileges and the obligations of, of citizenship. They don't just apply to you as an individual. They apply to us as a body. They apply, to, they apply corporately to the body of Christ. And so Paul says this to the church. He says, stand firm side by side for the faith of the gospel. Side by side, I love that picture. Uh, we're going to see it at the end of Philippians. He's going to use this picture again of side by side. But you know, just like Roman citizenship bound together the residents of Philippi, so the citizens of heaven who have professed Jesus as Lord are, be, are to be bound together in a common fight for the faith. That's what he says. In fact, he says, well, I would say this, the believers fight is, is not described as being against anything or against someone or against this. But our fight is for the faith. For the faith, for the gospel of truth. And I think that that's important because there's a difference, a, uh, there's a difference in fighting against something and fighting for something. And he says, you're fighting for the faith. Stand together. And in the fight for the faith of the gospel, and this steadfastness and this, this harmony that we're, he's calling the church to amongst themselves. There's, this is necessary. It, it's necessary because he's going to say this. You, you face three different opponents. And all of us are facing the, the same challenges and these same situations as we fight for the faith. And they're this. They're going to come up on the screen. Opponents, suffering, and conflict. Man. That describes some of our lives once in a while, doesn't it? And Paul says we must be bound together by, by unity of mind and of spirit. Now here's the thing about that, because we're facing these challenges, but here's the thing about this being bound together, standing side by side in, in unity with one another. I would say this, you know, unity of mind and spirit kind of encompasses your your inward attitude, your inward disposition. It's something that's sourced from the inside. You make a decision in your heart and, and in your mind. And the expression of that on the outside is this, is that you stand fast with one another in outward action. So inward, there's, there's unity of heart and mind and spirit. And outward, there's this steadfast striving for the faith of the gospel side by side. Shoulder to shoulder, pursuing the end of victory. And Paul says, you need that because you're going to face the same things that I faced. Opponents. Look at verse 28. He says this. I'm not frightened by anything in your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul says, man, your citizenship drives out fear because you know your identity. Your citizenship as you stand side by side means you don't have to fear any opponent ever. Isn't that awesome? When you think about that, that the gospel means you never need to be afraid of any opponent. You know, I would say if you're being attacked, it's probably proof that the enemy sees you as a worthy target. 
You know, proof that you're making an impact. And the instruction is this. Don't be frightened. Don't be terrified. Do not ever be imitate, uh, intimidated by the actions of adversaries when you're standing for the faith of the gospel. Look at verse 29. Paul talks about suffering. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You know, there's, there's suffering generally in life that we go through sickness or situation or whatever it is, and Christ is always working to glorify himself in our lives and through the midst of that. We saw that when we first were in the early part of this chapter one. But so too, you know, when you're connected to Jesus and suffering is inflicted on you for the purpose of harming Jesus, um, that suffering is suffering that is for the sake of Christ. And Paul considered it a privilege for a believer to suffer for the sake of Christ. It, it's an opportunity to demonstrate citizenship, to show your allegiance and your love for Jesus. And then he talks about conflict in verse 30. He says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and, and now hear that I still have. You know, Satan wants you to think this, that you're alone in your spiritual battle, that you're alone in the battle of, of life and of faith and that your battle is unique and that you're all on your own, but that's not the case. Paul reminded the church that he was going through the same sort of conflicts. He's in Rome, they're in Philippi. There's lots of miles between those cities. And they were both equally in the midst of conflict. And, and the truth is this, is that, you know, a change in geography, I've just found this, a change in geography is not the solution to spiritual problems. You know, your nature will follow you wherever you go. You will meet other people with human nature and you will meet the enemy wherever you go when you follow Jesus. And so Paul just reminds this church, you know, you're, you're citizens, you're going to face these things. Opponents, you don't need to be afraid. Suffering. Seek to glorify Jesus in the midst of it. And conflicts. And, you know, with regards to conflicts, knowing that, knowing that others who are followers of Jesus everywhere are involved in battle should be a source of encouragement to you, you know? You're in battle? Look, believers all over the world are involved in battle. It's part and parcel with following Jesus. And so take heart in that. Be encouraged by that. And so Paul calls this church to stand firm in one spirit. He says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he begins to take them to the greatest example, the example of all examples, who is who? Is who? Jesus. Look at chapter two, turn there with me. He's gonna first talk about the encouragement of Jesus. Verse one to four, he says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. And so as we see here, Paul's calling this church to unity. He's calling them to oneness of mind and, and spirit and striving side by side for the gospel. And he talks about here early on in chapter two, some of the different spiritual experiences that should motivate you towards a unity of spirit with your brothers and sisters in Christ. He talks about encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation with the spirit, any affection that you have in you, any, any sympathy that you have towards your brothers and sisters. And, and these spiritual experiences serve as the basis for unity amongst us as we follow Jesus together. That, that deep oneness of heart and soul to which the church is called to have, to be bound together. And, you know, as I read that, I, I just think, you know, it's important to, as we see what Paul's saying here and as he's calling the church to, to recognize and to kind of formulate for us the basis of this unity. That it's a unity that he is calling the church to because it's, it's, uh, it's motivated from within. The source and this desire for this unity is from the inside. It's a matter of, of heart. And as we're going to see in some verses ahead, it's a ma- unity is a matter of the mind of Christ. And so unity is a matter of the heart and of the mind of Christ. And you know, it's, I would say this, the, the, too many Christians and churches are confused and they don't understand this, that there is a difference between unity and uniformity. One is, sources its, its power from the inside and one sources its power from external pressure. True unity comes from within. Unity between brothers and sisters in Christ and between the body of Christ for the sake of the gospel, that unity, the power for that unity is sourced from the heart and from the mind of Christ. Uniformity, which is different, comes from the outside. It's the fruit of pressure from other people, legalism and judgment and rules. Let's say this, you have to look like me and we have to look alike. And I would say this, that's what cults do, right? You know, that's what some of the local groups do. They, they, they apply outside pressure and they try to make everyone in their group look the same. You look like us, you act like us, you talk like us. And, and they seek to conform them into the mold of their religion. But Paul says here, no, the unity that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ is to be from the heart, to be sourced from the mind of Christ. And the motivators for our unity, these internal motivators are encouragement in Christ, comfort and love, participation with the spirit, any affection or sympathy. And he says to them in verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's a challenging one, isn't it? You know, such a, a mind of selfish ambition and, and conceit, that, that's harmful to the unity of the body of Christ. Harmful to the unity of the church. That's the kind of attitude and thinking that seeks self and seeks self, selfish ends and it destroys 
fellowship and it destroys unity. And so Paul says the key is this, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. That's good instruction. And we do this, I would say, by realizing every single person around us, every single person here in the room is better than me in some way. And they're better than you in some way. They have different gifts and abilities and things that God has built into their into their lives. And when we see that other people have, you know, parts of their life that are better than ours, then we say, man, you know, it's a privilege. It's a privilege that we're together in the body, that you can offer this and I can offer uh, that and we can get to know one another as part of the family of Jesus, the church. You know, my natural mind is like, my natural mind is a fault-finding mind. And I can share that because I know that your natural mind is fault-finding. That we judge one another. That we pick other people's lives apart and our, spirit, our, our, our natural mind puffs up in pride and it likes to find fault in other people so that it can glorify itself. But the spiritual man or woman has to develop a mindset that says this, man, we are privileged to be in relationship with one another. We're privileged to serve Jesus together, to be around one another, to get to know one another. In verse four, he says this, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's like, man, it's like good to get to know each other in the body of Christ, isn't it? It totally is. To sit down and to hear one another's story, to say, how'd you come to Jesus? How'd you get here? What, what if, what's your story? What's your life? Where are you at with the Lord? What, what, what trials have you gone through? What is the joy of your life in Jesus? And Jesus desires that his, that his people in his body, the church, would have compassion for one another. And there's really no better example of that than, than Jesus himself. And that's where Paul takes us to the example of Jesus. Look at verse 5. Have this mind, among yourse- this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, this is like one of the more well-known, maybe more mysterious passages about Jesus in all the New Testament, isn't it? To read these things about him. And Paul says this to the church, he says this, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, um, Another translation says it this way. Let your attitude toward one another be governed by your union with the Messiah. And obviously the, the highest and best example of, of self-forgetfulness for the sake of others is that of Jesus. In Jesus, we have the perfect example of how we should behave towards one another. 
Jesus is the perfect example of someone who put other people ahead of himself. He's the perfect example of a servant, someone who served other people. Jesus is the perfect example of sacrifice. He sacrificed himself for the benefit of other people. Jesus is the perfect example of someone who glorified and magnified God the Father. And so Paul says, this is the mind that needs to be in us. This is the attitude. Let this attitude be in you, the same one that Jesus had. It's tough. Look at verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be possessed by force. You like pirates? I like pirate movies. And I remember when Eli was little, our, our home had a lot of pirate themed stuff in our house. And he'd come to church with his pirate bag and all of his different things. And I like the stories of pirates. You know what a pirate does with treasure? What does a pirate do with treasure? He buries it. He hides his treasure. And he hides it for a reason. The reason why a pirate hides his treasure is because he stole it. It's not his. And so he has to hide it. He has to bury it because it never belonged to him in the first place. Now what Paul is telling us is this. He's saying Jesus is not a pirate. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means this, to him it was not a treasure to be, to be clutched or to be retained. And the reason was this, is because it naturally belonged to him already. He was the rightful owner. He didn't have to steal or rob to attain godhood because he is in very nature God. Very God of very God. Jesus. I was thinking about a, a good way to kind of comprehend this sense of grasping equality with God, robbing. And what Paul is trying to tell us is maybe to comparatively consider Jesus and Lucifer. You know, the Bible alludes to the fact that, that about the story of Lucifer and his descent. And, and we know this from the scripture that by his nature, he was what? He was an angel. He was an angel. And what did he do? He grasped at Godhood. He said, I want what you have. I want your throne. I want it all. And he grasped for it. He tried to seize the throne and he tried to seize the nature, but he is not God by nature. But Jesus is. Jesus is God by nature. He was not grasping. He was not a pirate. He was not stealing anything. It belonged to him. He is God by his mere existence. And as Paul talks about Jesus, you know, he, he, we see this, that, that he did not need to have another manner of existence. Becoming a man was not something that he had to do. He was not robbing God in his existence as the 
eternal God because he existed eternally. Omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, the son of God. And Jesus did not have to become a man, but he was motivated to do it. By his love and by his grace and because of the will of his father. And so what motivated Jesus? You know, when I was thinking about it, what motivated Jesus? I think the same thing that Paul says should motivated, that should motivate us was the very things that motivated Jesus. Not outward pressure, but inward desire. He was comforted to descend because of his love for you. He desired to participate with the Holy Spirit and work with the plan of God. Because of his, Paul says, if you have any affection or sympathy, I think of Jesus. Did Jesus have affection? Yeah, he had affection for his creation. Did Jesus have sympathy? Yeah, sympathy for our condition without him. His desire was to follow the will of the Father. Jesus is very God of very God. You know, as Christians, like different churches and denominations and different things, you know, we can vary on lots of different things. There's room for variation within the body of Christ. It's, like we said, unity but not uniformity. But there is one issue upon which we cannot differ ever, 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 ever. And it's the nature and person of Jesus. On the deity of the eternal son. Very God of very God. Jesus is one substance with the father. The word of God says that he was begotten. Not created. A.W. Tozer said this. He said that in our defense of this truth. We must be very careful and very bold. Belligerent. If need be. I like that. It just struck me that it was like, wow. If need be, when it comes to defending the deity of Jesus, we'll be belligerent if we have to. Very God of very God. And this very Jesus, this Jesus was willing through the incarnation to enter another more humble existence, that of a servant, that of a man, clothed in human flesh. And he condescended. That's what we say. Not to patronize his creation. Not that kind of condescension. He condescended. He stooped. He, he lowered himself. He humbled himself for you. Because he was not willing that any should perish. But that all would come to eternal life. That's what the word of God tells us. That all would come to Repentance. And if you don't know Jesus, you know, I would just tell you the message of Jesus is very simple. Because the Bible just simply tells us this, that your sin has separated you from your God. And the Bible defines that condition as being lost. It says you're lost. You're lost. And you will never, ever, ever navigate your way out of that condition. You will not find your way out. You won't find your way out because being lost is the consequence of sin. 
And so Jesus stooped, very God, a very God, lowered himself, and he came on a mission. And he told us the purpose of his mission. He said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. A rescue mission. And Paul says he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now it's crazy when you talk about God doing this. It's like the eternal God clothed himself. This is mysterious. Don't you know that? Uh, isn't it? It's like, wow, you need, you need a way better preacher than me to explain these things to you. You know, the Bible, the, the, the theologians call it this. They call it the doctrine or the theology of kenosis to describe the renunciation of the divine nature and to be clothed in human flesh. And like lots of famous theologians and people have written on it, you know, Augustine, Calvin, you know, the list goes on and on and they've written a great deal in order to explain the, this reality that a pre-incarnate eternal God in all of his glory condescended and somehow became incarnate and in humility clothed himself in human flesh. I mean, how do you describe that? I, I mean, like the theology of kenosis, I, like I would just tell you, I don't even understand what that means. How do you explain very God of very God emptying himself and taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of man so that he could save his creation? It's way over my head. That to me is mysterious. To me, that is beautiful. To me, I say, you're a holy God. I have to stand in awe. And you know, I don't think that the point of this text is for you and I to understand the mystery of the incarnation. I think often when we come to this text, we spend too much time on that and, and we miss really the true heart and thrust of what Paul is saying. I think that the teaching point of this text is this, that we are to imitate the action of Jesus. You're not gonna explain the eternal glorified God in all of his deity coming and being made a man. But this you can do. You can imitate it. Imitate Jesus who emptied himself? Okay. That I can do. Asking God, I can ask God to empty myself of myself. Be a servant? That I can understand. Imitate Jesus that I can understand. Now look at verse 8. Look what Paul says. He says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So not only did Jesus, very God of very God, lower himself and take the form of a servant, God incarnate, become born in the likeness of men, but he humbled himself to this point that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because it was necessary. It was necessary for him to complete the mission to save and to seek and to save those who were lost. 
For those who could never navigate their way out of their condition and could never navigate their way to God, Jesus made the way, the way of the cross. And he died and he gave his life for the sins of the world. And we know the story of the gospel, buried in a tomb, raised to life, ascended to heaven, and seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne that always belonged to him. Right back where he started. The right hand of the Father. To seek and to save the lost. And Jesus did it. And what he calls us to in response is to repentance and faith. Repentance from sin and faith in Jesus. And repentance simply means to turn Turn from sin and to turn to Jesus. We, we change the direction of our lives from pursuing sin to pursuing Jesus. Repentance from sin and faith in Jesus. And we believe in our hearts that God raised them from the dead and we confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. And when you do that, you begin to find this, that man, there's no distance between God and I anymore. His love was following me and pursuing me. All along he was behind and he was before me. His goodness and his mercy have been following me. Even when I was in my lowest of lows, his love never let go. You know, here's the truth about Jesus, right? It's like you, you, can't, you cannot outrun his love. If you're on the run this morning, I gotta tell you, you cannot outrun his love. Where are you going to hide? He came to seek those who were lost. Where are you going to run? You won't outrun his love. And he did it all, Paul says, even becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul calls the church, look, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to you and I. This is the spirit of God speaking through the apostle Paul. And he calls the church to this. He says, stand firm in one spirit. With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You know, to stand firm in one spirit, to have one mind so as to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel the Holy Spirit would call us to do this, to imitate Jesus. That's what that looks like. Jesus who emptied himself. Jesus who was a servant. Imitate Jesus. Jesus who laid down his life for the sake of others. Imitate Jesus. You know, Jesus even said it this way. He said this. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, this call, this call to imitate Jesus is the call to die to yourself. Get over yourself. Forget yourself. Jesus condescended from eternal glory for you. Get over yourself. You know, many years ago, I, I, I heard about a man who ended up in an elevator with Prince. You know, Prince, the musical artist, he's it was last year he passed away, right? And this man took the opportunity and he began to share the gospel of Jesus with Prince. And as the elevator was 
coming to a standstill and Prince stepped off the elevator. He fired a question at the man and he, and he said this to him, to this man who had shared Jesus with him. He, he said, how much will it cost? How much will it cost me to follow your Jesus? And the man said back to him, everything. It will cost you everything. You know what Prince said? He said, that's too much. And he walked off the elevator. This is the call to the crucified life. This is what Paul is calling the body of Christ to. The call to the crucified life. And I want to tell you, it's costly to follow Jesus. It will cost you. It will cost you your life. And for us, this is the call to the one thing that matters in the life of every church and in the life of every individual in this church, that Christ be magnified, that Jesus be glorified. And Jesus said this in Luke 9, 24 and 25, he said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? You see, this unity to which the, Paul is calling the church, this, this behavior, this living the life that is worthy of the, of the gospel is really this. It's about the exaltation of Jesus. It's about glorifying Jesus. It's about magnifying him. That is the will of God. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst to lift him up. And this is the, the ultimate role and mission of the church, that Jesus be exalted. Remember what, what it said here when we, where we started in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And Paul says, yeah, there's going to be opponents. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be conflicts. Just like there was in Philippi, just like there was for Paul, and just like there was for Jesus. But the will of God is this, that Jesus be exalted. And this is where we'll wrap up this morning, the exaltation of Jesus. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me start, I guess, with a, with a word about us. See, the, the pattern for us to be lifted up is exactly the same pattern as it was for Jesus. Peter said it this way. Apostle Peter, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he will exalt you, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. 
See, if we exalt ourselves, demand our way, God has the ability to humble us and maybe humiliate us. But if you humble yourself before God, you'll be exalted. And Jesus is the perfect example. Let's read it again. The exaltation of Jesus. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See the whole purpose, it's important to catch this, the whole purpose of Jesus' humiliation and then exaltation was the end goal of bringing glory to God. Was the end goal of the Father being glorified. And that's the ultimate purpose that we're called to. And the way we do it is this, exactly what this scripture tells us is that we bend the knee of our lives to Jesus. That is this, we surrender. We submit. We humble ourselves to Jesus and then we confess to the king. You've conquered me. You've conquered my heart. You've conquered my life. I confess that you are Lord. We bow the knee and with our tongue we confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord. Lord. That implies power. Dignity. Authority. Honor. Dominion. That he's worthy of adoration. Jesus is Lord. Church, God has called us to stand firm in one spirit. This is the call of the Holy Spirit, to stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here's the call this morning. Only let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Not worthy to be saved, but because you're saved, you live for the glory of the gospel. It's a good, it's a good challenge. Jesus be magnified.